Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the creators behind the screenwriting app Slugline, Stu Mastrowitz and Clint Torres. Thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah. yeah. Great to be here. Nice to be here. Uh, <laughs> so, as you can already tell, uh, because I'm not very smooth, uh, we have two people on here. And uh, <laughs> this is the second time I've done this, but it's been a while. So, this will be this will be a fun one to get through. But I think, I think it's also exciting because I really like hearing about these apps that uh, are done by partnerships and kind of how that stuff grew about. So I'm really excited to talk about talk about this app today. So to to start the show, we always ask a, a little icebreaker question from the audience. And today's is from Heidi, and she asks, "What has been your app of choice for keeping up with friends and family during these times? Have you gotten into the Zoom craze or something else?" So Stu, we'll start with you. Yeah, I've been very uh, opportunistic with that, using kind of whatever whoever wants to use. Yeah. Um, I have to say that Zoom has has kind of topped them all because of just the grid view functionality, but I've been impressed with some other options. Clint, you just used one recently for a social gathering that I actually thought was pretty cool, um, and I wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, uh, I was using Jitsi. Uh, yeah, that's the one. Open source video conference thing. So it's it such a cooler answer than my my answer is lame. I'm like <laughs> well, Zoom, whatever. But Clint's is cool. Well, I, I got here just because I tried to figure out how to host that type of event. I, I would have used Zoom if it if I didn't try to do something different. Uh, but what I did particularly was set up a, a handful of different rooms that people could move between to try to have different conversations all at one like party thing. Oh, so it worked well enough, but our house, even on a good internet connection, couldn't quite handle all the streams I wanted to by the end. So you had the, it was a server that you had to set up and host. Uh, no, but I should have, uh, no. you get better <laughs> performance if you set it up yourself is what I hear. Uh, we were just using their, their free connection thing, which maybe, maybe I needed some more control over. Interesting. I feel like that is, that has been the perennial problem for me. Uh, cause this was the year that I was supposed to start traveling and go to conferences and meet all these other iOS developers. And, uh, obviously that isn't exactly happening. So I've been trying to figure out like, how do you replicate that and the problem is always sure you can get 50 people on a zoom call but how do you like how do you have smaller conversations within that and i've seen a couple of different ways of doing that but this sounds like it's it's one of the attempts to sort of answer that question i guess yeah very much because the it was a social gathering like Stu said so i was i knew i'd have a bunch of disparate people from family and friend groups and different work groups and stuff so i really wanted there to be at least three different places where everyone could sit and be with the people they were comfortable with you know, it works out pretty well if you just set up a different room per topic and make sure everyone knows how to get between the rooms. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with how well it worked. You you, you attacked a problem that I think is is really an issue with those kinds of social gatherings. You in, in a in a group any larger than five people, you tend to break off into little subgroups and have little breakout conversations, and that's such an essential part of socializing that has that has just not been no one has tried to emulate that in in a kind of conference you know digital conferencing uh system so it was a cool cool attempt i thought it was uh, and, and i think it mostly worked too and that's called jitsi yeah j-i-t-s-i 
Okay, cool. I will include that in the show notes because I'm definitely interested in that. I've, se- I've seen a couple of people do like sort of video gamey things where everybody has an avatar with like a TV for a head that shows their webcam. That's fun. Or uh, like VR ones also. But the problem with the VR ones is you're not getting a video feed of the people's face, which is kind of, I feel like a big part of the social component. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I have yet to see one of those that has really captured, I think, the promise of kind of emulating presence that VR seeks to or claims to be able to tackle. Yeah. So awesome. Well, thank you, Heidi. That was that was a good question. And I learned yeah. about a new tool that I hadn't heard of yet. So uh, I appreciate that. All right. So before we get into Slugline, the app that you guys uh, have built, I want to give everybody a primer on who both of you are. So we'll go through each of you separately. So Clint, um, where are you from? And what did you do pre-Slugline slash what do you do sort of outside of Slugline? Okay. I'm uh, in Northern California right now. I went to college in Arizona. I was a computer scientist. And when I was in an internship up here in Northern California, I learned about some of the computational biology work that was happening at uh, at Livermore Lab. So by the next summer, I came back for another internship and focused on biotechnology for most of my career. I spent uh, 15 years at the same place doing the same kind of job, which was uh, biodefense, counter-bioterrorism. Oh, wow. That seems relevant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, particularly, we were making assays tests to find bad bugs find diseases when they show up so we could stop them before they turn into outbreaks the overarching theme of the whole work though was always trying to figure out how to uh, how to be more effective at delivering our solutions and i didn't realize that for for a handful of years but i knew that was the impediment after a while you you can come up with the best technological solutions but you can't get them out into the world most of the time unless you can tell a story with it or can compel people in some meaningful way and that really dovetailed nicely with my whole lifelong distraction with movies because i was always focused on how they're being made what was going on i was never lucky enough to know about or be a part of the community like uh, most filmmakers were when i was young so i didn't really get my my teeth into old cinefx magazine copies until much later in life but once I learned about it, I went through and devoured those as best as I could, just trying to learn about film craft and what was going on with it. And when I finally put all those things together, I had my software capacity and I had my filmmaking knowledge up a little. I realized there was just really cool problems out there that could be solved and uh, your lives made simpler if you could work on the technical solution a little more. So I kind of shifted focus. My side projects became working on filmmaking tools. That's how I met Stu. Uh, we bounced off each other because we're both kind of local to the same area a couple times. And then we figured out that we could build this thing together, uh, build Slugline together. And uh, that became my focus. It it was going so well and I was having so much good time on it that I turned that into my full-time job a handful of years ago. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. So were you, were you like into filmmaking in terms of uh, like, did you work on shorts or movies or anything? Or was it kind of like you sort of ran in those circles and played with, uh, hung out with those people and that's how you knew kind of different software because you've made a couple apps on your own too right uh yeah there's there's one other app that i tried to keep running but uh is currently down it's it's a color c- control surface uh basically just an ipad uh, digital trackball uh but the i wasn't running in the circles until i started doing more of the community and local events 
So I, I was fully an outsider and started showing up at local f- film festivals, local things. And then I started doing those uh, filmmaking competitions with a handful of friends, a camera and no good audio equipment. Oh, nice. Uh, once we did a few of those, uh, I, we we kind of just found a project here and there or a competition here and there to participate in over a few years. And then it became that I, I thought I was going to be more effective at the software side for a little while instead of actually doing filmmaking myself. That's awesome. That I definitely like resonate with that because that sort of feels similar to what I'm doing now with the iOS stuff where like I've sort of lived on the sidelines of iOS world for a really long time. And then in the last year is when I sort of flipped the script and joined it. And it's been kind of a whirlwind experience to get to like talk to all these people that have been uh, inspirations for me for a long time. And I, I have to imagine meeting Stu, especially if you were consuming Cinefx articles and stuff, uh, just meeting him and then let alone getting to work with him later was probably a really cool experience. It's it's just lovely. And the, over and over, you you run into some person that did something on one of the most important pieces of, of history or of media in your life. And you just pause for a moment to go, you, you helped do that for me. Thank you. And it's just <laughs> a wonderful feeling to have over and over again because there's so many people working in the industry. All right. So, Stu, uh, Intrepid listeners uh, will recognize your name because I had Seth Worley on a couple episodes ago. And yeah. uh, we had a little uh, side segment that ended up just being the history of Stu for a little bit because uh, he, he sees you <laughs> as kind of a mentor. So um, so people might be familiar with you through that or probably familiar with you because, you know, you run in the iOS circles and in the filmmaking circles and have for a long time. But uh, let's just give prim- a primer of kind of like what brought you to Slugline. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, how do how do I get to Slugland? Um <laughs> whenever I have to write a very short bio for myself on some social platform, I always just write filmmaking nerd because I realized that was kind of the distillation of everything, you know, like when I was a kid, it was backyard attempts at stop motion animation trying to make Empire Strikes Back, you know, with a Super 8 camera and then also you know, writing little basic programs on my Amiga to try to create a flight simulator or some sort of on-screen graphics for some terrible little, you know, VHS film I was making. So, I've always kind of had this double side of being very compelled with, you know, visual storytelling and, and cinematic language. And then also the tools that support that. And you know, when I, 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 I went to, uh, to film school at CalArts and managed to kind of keep that dual thing going, shooting films, editing them, but also continuing to geek out and try to, uh, you know, create computer graphics to support the story. And I was, I was fascinated with the software side of things and the process of making it and started to meet some of the people who were making the tools I was using. And then I got my dream job at Industrial Light and Magic at, at a very young age, just straight out of college, because it was just a crazy time in the industry where they they needed anyone who kind of vaguely knew which end of the computer was up. And, <laughs> yeah, what a keyboard <laughs> is. Um, and so I kind of stumbled into an opportunity there, uh, which which you know turned out to be just the right the right place and right time for me to have some amazing opportunities uh, to work on some you know, seminal movies like, you know, not only the kind of, uh, 
that, you know, like basically the aftermath of Jurassic Park kind of movies, you know, like uh, Twister and, and uh, Congo and uh, Jumanji and all that. And then, um, and, and what this, this weird thing happened though, while I was at ILM, which is that the, the, the desire to kind of make my own films never really went away. And so I started, uh, I, I bought like the first DV camera that was available and started shooting my own short film. And that eventually led me to, uh, to quit ILM and start my own visual effects company, uh, called the orphanage. But one of the services that the orphanage offered was digital color correction for kind of the very nascent idea of people shooting movies on digital formats like DV. And so then along comes the software, you know, tool creation side of me. Again, I created this thing called magic bullet, which at the time was a little bit less about color correction and more about the frame rate conversion aspect of things, but became a color correction tool. And, you know, along the way, I was still working on personal projects, writing my short films, writing features, developing projects. And I was like everyone kind of forced through this kind of double weird gatekeeping gauntlet of deciding when I was going to drop $200 of my own hard earned money on a bunch of floppy disks for final draft. And, and to, to do that and then, and then get it and have a kind of that simultaneous feeling of like typing in that courier 12 on a beige Mac and thinking, wow, look how much this looks like all the amazing, you know, screenplays that I, you know, would jealously hoard and read as, as, as often as I could. Um, and combined with the absolute frustration of working with this kind of archaic software that seemed to be dragged kicking and screaming into, <laughs> you know, uh, OS updates and whatever else. And, and fi- final draft was sort of the, the Microsoft word of the, script writing world right it's just absolutely the established thing it was the photoshop maybe that's a better example everybody kind of thinks of it as clunky but it's what everybody uses and you kind of don't have a choice but it's also extremely feature rich yeah and i i think i think i think both of those comparisons are apt i would take the microsoft word one a little more because microsoft word also had i mean photoshop had some fits and starts with things like the intel transition for mac and stuff like that but that was i think as much Apple's fault as Adobe's, but, Fair enough, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but the, but final draft always felt e- even Microsoft word, you know, once Microsoft committed to keeping it up to date on the Mac, uh, you know, it was a real commitment. They just made some poor decisions. You know, there was that sort of famous thing of like, it was almost like the Star Trek movies, you know, where like the even numbered ones were good. There were like yeah. <laughs> odd number updates to Microsoft Word that were okay and the even number ones were bad or something like that. I don't know. That's like a Yeah, they didn't they bring the the like Windows ribbon into into the Mac briefly? Yeah, yeah. Well, at some point they they refactored the Mac version to essentially be like running an emulation of the Windows version oh, or some okay. garbage That's like that. I, you know, I'm I'm these are all kind of like potentially, you know, just rumor apocryphal stories, <laughs> but it sure felt like that, you know. And that was that was the thing that, about Final Draft as well is like it it felt like when anti-alias text came to OS 10 there was this great thing where you'd run, you'd run final draft and the text would be anti-aliased. But if you like moved another window over it and then moved it away, the text under where that window had, had 
caused a redraw was no longer anti-alias. Oh man. So there were just these like insane bugs and like, you know, you just felt like they were begrudgingly kind of trying to nurse the app along to uh, keep it, you know, relevant and, and, or to keep it, you know, even just barely operable on, on the current operating system. And so, so it was, you know, that, that, that left a, an imprint on me, even as I started writing screenplays less and working more in the post-production side of things. And then of course, what happened is like in kind of the, uh, like the, the DV revolution that I had been a part of gave way years later to the, video DSLR res- revolution and my blog prolos.com became um, a place where I could talk about that stuff and it was on a lot of people's minds and so there was a lot I was writing a lot you know I was writing a lot of of uh, of stuff for the web blog posts and things and and I discovered markdown um, and I had known about it and I was skeptical about it and it's one of those funny things where Sometimes you have to almost invent something on your own before you can appreciate someone else's <laughs> attempt, you know, to, to solve a problem. So I would write a blog post. And then when I wanted to insert a link or something like that, because my Prolost was hosted on Blogger back then. So there was no markdown support. There was just a, a terrible WYSIWYG kind of interface for typing your text in. So you couldn't write rich text and paste it in because all the formatting would be bogus and terrible. So I'd write in plain text and I had a little markup system where I'd be like, oh, I'm going to insert a link here later or I'm going to insert an image here (laughs) later. And then I finally kind of, you know, woke up and realized, oh, that's what Markdown is. <laughs> like someone else actually did this, but there's actually tools that support it. And and as is typically the case with me, the thing I was most skeptical of, I became a devout fan and and uh and user of and advocate for. And then a little weird bug happened inside of me where I'm like, oh well maybe there should be a version of Markdown for screenplays because screenplays are even simpler than web pages. There are very few things they need to do. <laughs> and, uh, and so I started kind of kicking around this idea for what I called screenplay markdown at the time. And I started blogging about it and kind of experimenting with it in public. And I got some friends to help make some tools that kind of understood it. And, uh, that is when John August got in touch with me and said, Hey, you know, that looks cool. I'm kind of working on something similar. Maybe we should join forces. And, uh, and that is how, um, the fountain screenplay format, uh, kind of came to be. Um, so that was a very long meandering (laughs) answer to your question about, no, I think that walks us right up to, to this point. So this is, this is around like, uh, 2010s timeframe. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Right around in there. Yep. So, so you and some other people were sort of, uh, building out a essentially markdown, but for screenplays, because there's different sets of requirements, obviously for what you want the output to be. Um, and that was dot fountain is the, is the, is the file type or whatever you want to call that. How did, how did you like publish that just out of curiosity? Um, it was really a great case of like uh, kind of lazy webbing slash just being, I don't, I don't know, just ex- like exposing my process basically, you know, um, the, all the early blog posts are still there on Prolost where you can kind of see me 
experimenting with what the syntax might be and how it might work. Um, but is there is there like a standards body now or something? Because with Markdown, it was John Gerber invented it, right? Yeah. But it's sort of like at this point, I would almost say that GitHub's implementation of it is sort of the one that is like almost a standard because there's not really a single body that owns Markdown as a concept. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. But but I think I think the way we took a lot of inspiration from from what John did with Markdown and I think the most important thing he did was just to create a website to kind of canonically document the syntax, you know. Okay. And and so that's what uh John August and I did. And he 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 turned his mighty John August kind of web publishing uh apparatus onto that, which means that now fountain.io is like a beautifully designed web page with some interactive stuff on it and you know uh some uh links to source code on github and all that great stuff um most of the copy on that website i wrote but the fountain you know spec is a direct result of john and myself and clint and a couple other folks um just hashing it out over email really just just kind of saying what if it was like this what if it was like that trying it out and arriving uh at a at a conclusion and you know we we stood on the shoulders of giants you know like markdown has stood the test of time and like you said it's been kind of forked in a couple important ways there's multi markdown and github markdown um but the great thing is if you write a document According to John's original specifications, all of those all of those derivations still work with it. So right, uh, yeah. So at this point, you you have a spec out. Now, were you working on Slugline? Like, when did you and Clint, I guess, start getting together and working on Slugline? Was that while you were developing this uh, standard, or was that after? Well, you know, along the way. I, it's it's a it's a funny thing. This happens so so along the way I had I had turned my attention to I was so desperate to have an alternative to Final Draft that anyone who would listen, <laughs> I would design an email or I would design a uh a, a screenwriting app in in an email and send it to them, you know. So Adobe had Adobe Story. I was friends with the product manager who was working on that. I went up and visited her in Seattle and said, here's everything that a screenwriting app should do. And she was like, yeah, we're going in a different direction. Uh, we're going to do other stuff. And then I would email whoever had like the kind of lightweight Mac-friendly screenwriting app du jour. And I'd say, hey, these are all the things that a screenwriting app should do. And by the way, you should support Fountain. <laughs> and they'd say, hmm, cool ideas. We're working on some other stuff. And so little by little, I realized that as I had been dreaming up Fountain and working on it with, with our collaborators, in the back of my head, I always had an app floating there on my screen that was, that was, uh, that was using it. And, and no matter how, who I reached out to and said, will you please make this app for me? Um, so I don't have to, I, that's implicitly, I guess, kind of what I was saying. Everyone was like, but we are human beings who have our own ideas and our own lives and we, <laughs> we don't work that way. Um, so I eventually realized that the only way to get this out of my system was, would be to try to make it. The problem is I don't actually know how to do anything useful or relevant with a computer. And so I, I needed, I needed a, a co-conspirator. So I, I reached out to Clint and said, uh, what do you think about working together to create a fountain native screenwriting application? 
And uh, luckily for me, he was interested. So had you, Clint, had you done any like heavy text editing uh, work before? No. And I had no idea that the text system was one of the most complicated on the computer, even today. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's so like, to me, that is one of the most, uh, scary like uh intimidating parts of software development is if you have to do anything custom with text and so doing an app literally dedicated to that especially one where you're trying to hide the interface and just have it just be the text editor that is really intimidating it it was a big uphill struggle to start with um i had i had done just enough text work with uh graphic visualization and biology before that i kind of knew my way around the subsystems but i still had so much more to learn because hopefully it comes out in slugline uh the little interactions the little ways that text either moves or doesn't move around under your cursor uh, those are all very carefully designed within the constraints we have as best as possible so each one of the little movements that might have to happen has to have some custom code underneath it it took me a while to figure out all the different levers that I had to pull to make the app actually feel like we wanted it to. Yeah, I I have to imagine that was a big undertaking. But now that you know it, I guess I guess the struggle is if uh, Apple decides to change things out from underneath you, since you're not just relying on on their uh, text fields. Yeah, and luckily that only happens at like nine o'clock every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been insane. I have to say that aspect of things. I, I I also made the mistake of thinking, oh man, come on, it's just text. But boy, was I ever wrong. Yeah. Oh, I've, for for the early times, I felt so bad because I was the unresponsive co-conspirator in this. Like I would I would disappear for two weeks at a time just trying to figure out how to get one little thing done. And Sue's sitting there twiddling his thumbs. Like did did he forget about me? <laughs> I'm just sitting there bashing my head against the keyboard trying to make one next thing work. So where did the name Slugline come from? Because if for whatever reason, it conjures up an image of like the old linotype machines, but that's not really associated with uh, screenwriting, is it? Yeah, the uh, the the term slugline is like kind of a colloquial term for scene headings in a screenplay. Oh, um, that makes sense. And it has a couple other meanings in 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 journalism and as we found out hilariously it's also uh if you put a space in it it's the name of a kind of uh shared commuting uh system in washington dc oh. um but <laughs> um it, it's uh it's it, yeah it's just a it's just a colloquial term for the you know interior cafe day line in a screenplay ah okay so when you guys started this, uh, the first version of this was Mac only, right? Yeah. Um, I assume at that time the iPad was probably out, but it was just out. So like that, that I assume is what most, and probably still today is what most screenwriting is done on is, is Macs or at least the laptops. Yeah. I think an informal sampling of, you know, Starbucks, uh, in Los Angeles would probably, uh, <laughs> bear that out. Yeah. That you, you mostly see little, uh, glowing Apple logos. Um, it's not nearly so much the case now as it was, I think when we got started, um, there may be a little bit of a resurgence there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it felt like the right place to start and it wasn't like a decision of disinclusion. It was just a, uh, what, what can we do? Like, how can we get going with this? You know? Right. Uh, yeah. So as you're building this, uh, what was your, what was your sort of process for, I mean, 
it's interesting because you sort of have a a career of opinions on what a writing app should be and because there's a lot of players in the field it's kind of like you can make something that's very niche for like you and hope that it works for lots of other people but were you also seeding it out to friends and kind of getting feedback from them as you were building this yeah very much so um the hope i guess was that the same kind of revolution of writing the experience that you could have going from something like microsoft word or even Google Docs to something like IA Writer or Byword was was always my favorite on the Mac and, and then on the iPad. Um, it, it was so freeing and so liberating in so many ways. Um, I wanted screenwriters to have, I think we both wanted screenwriters to have that same feeling of just breathing of fresh air, of just like not feeling this app kind of clamped around you while you're trying to work. So, so it's, it's really this all inclusive idea of like the, the file format itself allows the app to be simpler because you don't have to declare what type of element you're typing. If you just type something that looks like a screenplay Slugline automatically parses the fountain format and says, Oh, that's a scene heading. Oh, that must be a character. That must be dialogue. So that's freeing in and of itself. Our hope was that that would make writers more productive and less distracted. But, but yeah, then there was also this sense of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, we just, maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer. We, we, we were trying to create this, uh, this writing experience that we had seen other places, you know, we didn't invent the idea of a lightweight distraction free writing environment. We just thought that screenwriters deserve to have their version of that. Yeah, that makes sense. And you kind of said it with when you use the word declared earlier, but I like how a lot of your marketing material uses the term inferred formatting versus declared formatting. Yeah, I'm glad you like that because I never am sure if that lands with people <laughs> well i mean I, i'm probably not the best audience because i'm i'm technically minded but like yeah uh i've never heard anybody say that because that that is the same it, that describes the feeling i got switching to markdown like you're describing where it's like yeah oh i'm not trying to convince this program to do this certain thing because under the hood like i want to try and tell it what i want uh so that it will do whatever it needs to do under the hood it's the opposite it's kind of like i'm just typing what i type and then it's going to show it to me in the however it understands this thing but i'm the one actually writing the the text and then it just sort of infers what that means based on uh based on the formatting or it's not just you know surrounding it in uh stars or underscores or whatever it's like in your case it's like if it has this word uh, at the beginning, like INT or whatever, I can assume that this is what that means. Or if it's all uppercase, then probably what you mean is this. And I don't know. I just, it, I can really feel, I feel that whenever I use like IA writer and I can yeah. see, especially in a screenwriting world where it's a very like small set of things that you're doing, but it's very specific. It feels like a very natural fit. Uh, yeah, I think so too. And, and I, and I, I, I really feel strongly that there was this misguided notion when computers got fancy that, um, that WYSIWYG was somehow easier or less burdensome or less requiring the user to be less technical. Um, 
I think there would be people who look at slugline and see the asterisks telling you that a word is meant to be italics or whatever, and they think, that's not for me. I'm not technical. But that same writer has, I know, struggled with a Microsoft Word document where they've inserted a bulleted list and then tried to change the formatting around it and it's not working and they don't know why. Or they typed a word in bold and they hit return and then they accidentally typed an entire paragraph in bold without knowing why. Or they adjust the margin of the paragraph before a page break and they don't realize until they've sent the PDF off to someone else that it also adjusted the margin for the paragraph right after the page break for some stupid reason. <laughs> like, And what, what happens with WYSIWYG is that you, the writer, know that there are little flags around your word saying that it should be italic. You just can't see them. And so you have to store them in your mind and you have to maintain that mental model so that you know that if you place the cursor after a word that's in italics and you hit return and start typing again, you know that you're going to have to hit command I to unitalic the thing because you know there's a little flag after your cursor saying I'm still italics, idiot. Like you, you just, you're just, the app just isn't showing it to you. And one of the things I've learned is I kind of have self-taught myself user experience design is that an app can be so simple that it hides from you the things that are going on. A great example is like Lightroom versus Apple Photos, right? So like if you use Adobe Lightroom and you import some photos, it starts syncing them to the cloud right away and it shows you that it's doing it. It shows you a progress bar for how it's doing and you have a lot of control over how it works. It's very, it's impossible to be confused about how it's doing it. Apple photos, you import some photos and it will sync them eventually <laughs> on its own time and its own schedule based on a hundred factors that are invisible and that you can't control. Like, you know, whether or not you're using your internet for something else, whether or not your device is connected to power, whether or not, you know, what the battery level is on it. And so when my elderly dad calls me for tech support with his Apple photos, you know, we have to do a lot of spelunking and figuring out. He's like, why hasn't, why haven't any of the photos I've taken on my phone synced to my computer in the last week? And the answer is, who the hell knows one of a thousand <laughs> things, right? Because Apple has hidden the process from you. So this thing of like kind of hiding technical stuff from the user winds up forcing the user to become more technical. And I lament that. And I think formats like Markdown and Fountain actually free you from technical burden by imposing a slight sort of technical visual impression on you as you work. I think that's especially true when you can still bring some of the UI elements to help users along. Like one of the things about Markdown that's sort of intimidating for people is you have to learn all of these uh, things. But as apps come along, like Command B, or maybe there's even a button, but like all these yeah. shortcuts that you've learned from decades of using a computer, they just work and they they do it for you. But by making it visible to you, that's like training you to be able to do it on your own. Uh, exactly. A hundred percent. And, and we, that's, that's, I think the stuff that Clint should be most proud of about what he's managed to work out in, uh, in Slugline. Um, you know, if you type, uh, a character name in, uh, all uppercase in 
other fountain enabled apps and hit return, it's not a character name until you start typing some dialogue afterwards. Um, and so it the character name won't outdent to the right sort of formatting, you know, tab, uh, and until you put some dialogue to it. But Clint figured out a way to kind of speculatively say, this is probably a character name. So I'm going to show it to you in that way to make you more comfortable. And if you start typing dialogue, your assumption will be confirmed. But if you don't, if you do something else, then the character name will snap back to the left margin to tell you, yeah, I, I realize that you're not actually trying to type a character now. And there's a million little things like that that Clint has figured out in the app that, that are uh, guiding you and teaching you about how Fountain works as you go. So I, I think you put it perfectly, Charlie. That's exactly the, what, what we're hoping to, to provide for folks. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Because... I could see if you're a lifetime uh, uh, final draft user or whatever, it could be intimidating going to something that looks looks different at all, really. Um, but having those little things to sort of guide users along, I feel like that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, we're trying. I mean, I definitely, I definitely have friends. I cherish these friends who still haven't converted. You know, who still. Use, oh yeah, that's so helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great because everything they tell me about wh what you know, keeps them from switching to fountain, um, is, is, is something we can use to help make our app better. Yeah. It's like, I mean, knowing people who don't use your own products, I feel like has to be one of the most valuable things because they can tell you why they don't. And maybe that reason is something you don't want to do, but a lot of times it's like they, uh, you're not going to know what the competition is doing necessarily unless you hear it through the lens of somebody who lives with it every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. So, um, let's talk about business models then, because this app came out in 2013. Is that correct? Yep. And so that's been around for quite a while. Um, yeah. and so you've gone through a couple things and, uh, I guess I don't know if I've actually mentioned it yet. I'm a great host. Uh, but the, the <laughs> part of the reason why you're coming on is because you guys just released Slugline 2. And there's a, some changes that kind of come with that. So I kind of want to talk about what it's been like as an app that's been around for a long time. And importantly, you guys released in the Mac App Store uh, from the get-go, right? Yeah. So that, that has its whole other interesting things to it. So the initial <laughs> version of Slugline, what was kind of your primary business model? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it was very simple uh, and and intentionally so. Uh, the idea was that we would make an app and sell it for money, <laughs> um, and I think I, and I say that in in an intentionally kind of naive sounding way because I think that is kind of our whole mm, way of being about this stuff. I, I think that we are not super clever about marketing or pricing or business models. I think that we wanted the experience of use, you know, of, of acquiring and using the app to be simple and easy commensurate with the rest of the aspirations of the, the app that, uh, has been a double-edged sword as you might imagine. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of what I'm really curious about here because, yeah. uh, because you're in the Mac app store, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not as familiar with the Mac. You're you're not allowed to do paid upgrades at all as a concept, right? With the same app. That is correct. Um, other clever folks 
with massive, you know, kind of teams of smart people have figured out workarounds for that, but they all kind of are based on the idea of some kind of an account that is managed outside of the application right. itself. And again, we just wanted to try to keep it simple. So yeah, we, we, any, any, any growth or ongoing income of Slugline One for Mac came from just more people finding it and wanting to buy it. Um, and, and that worked for a while. And of course, as you know, that peters out if you don't constantly put effort into it. And one of the ways that a few years later we put effort into it was by creating a trial version that you could download from our website, which was a difficult decision to make because it certainly violated the simplicity thing. Right. Um, but, you know, we were asking $40 for a productivity app that you couldn't try before you bought and that didn't feel right to us. And so the way we figured out how to do that, and this was, this is all, all credit goes to Clint for figuring out the mechanism of this was to create uh, a, a time expiring, but otherwise unrestricted trial version that uh, you could install outside of the app store. But if you then went and bought the app store version, it would install over that version with uh, the app store version. <laughs> so Clint, does, can you buy it through the, app like whenever the trial expires does it pop up a thing and send you over to the app store or do you have like a separate mechanism that you can buy it completely outside of the app store only in the app store so it would okay. forward you just back into the app store that's interesting okay yeah it's it's all all those options that you're you're suggesting as possible were considered for sure uh but i think one of the great things Stu does is is takes a step back from any system, any complicated system he's looking at and try to figure out and, and is able to figure out very well what the hiccups are, what the snags are. And he could see that if we had multiple routes in, it just complicates the experience. So I would, I would say that even our purchase design isn't simple just because we're only on the app store. It's only on the app store because we wanted to make it simple because he put extra effort into figuring out what the experience would be. If you wanted to learn about this thing, if you wanted to get into it and then if you wanted to use it. Yeah. I like that. Cause I, as a user, I, I don't like having to make that choice between the two all the time. And it seems like usually people do get clever around app store versus non app store stuff, but it, it's usually for the opposite reason because they want you to purchase it off of the store so that you have uh so that they don't have to give their 30 percent cut yeah and and so they can um have a relationship with you as the customer which i think is one of the biggest frustrations mm, yeah the, 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 we, we we give up so much marketing ability you know ability to support and uh and and advertise to our customers but really support them by choosing the app store and uh and we do it whether this turns out to be the case or not we do it with a spirit of generosity to the customer because we want them to be able to buy a new mac log in with their apple id and have slugline running on it on day one without remembering a password or an account or a thing or whatever you know yeah because it is like as a user, I, I really like the Mac App Store like experience and especially for an app exactly, like yours yeah. uh, where 
sort of the whole ethos, like you said, is simplicity makes it sound reductive. And that's not really what I mean, but like uh, a seamless, I guess it, it feels like it's part of the Mac, it, like native to the Mac in the way that uh, iOS apps feel native to iOS. Like it's all just part of the sort of Apple ecosystem. And I think there's a lot to be gained uh, by doing that. But like you said, there's definitely sacrifice involved. It's a, it's a, it's a, we see it all the time with support emails. People will email us and they'll say, okay, I got a new computer and I want to put Slugline on it. Um, okay. So my email is this, but I'm not sure if I did this, you know, I don't know what information, like I, do you need the last four digits of my credit card? And it's so, it's such a pleasure to say, no, man, just open the, open the Mac app store and just, just find it in your purchased items and hit the download button. It's, 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 it, that is a great experience as a, as a user. And, and we, we wanted that experience for our customers. And we, we, we sacrifice a lot of stuff that a more savvy sort of marketing oriented company, I think would, would not be willing to sacrifice in order to, to give that experience to users. Um, and and I I think it's a net positive, but it's it's certainly something we talk about a lot. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah, uh, yeah. As the little uh, features of the Mac App Store kind of shift over time, and and other developers get very clever about their delivery mechanisms, we very often go back to the board and say, okay, does this fundamentally change what we're trying to offer or how we're trying to offer it? it it's a very regular conversation. Huh. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. So over time. Uh, like you said, with the paid up front app, the only new users that can, the only way you can make money is uh, new users to your application completely, whether that's people that are new to the industry or, you know, the market is just way bigger and you can keep capturing more, however that works. But eventually that kind of dries up. So I assume one of the things that you've done that's helped is, is you introducing the iOS app because that was a new, that was a totally separate purchase, correct? Yeah, that was that was an opportunity to just start the same flawed business model over at zero. <laughs> uh, <laughs> learning from our mistakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so based on everything we've learned, we'll just go and do the exact same thing again. Yeah, perfect. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So how did the, the iOS uh, app process go, Clint? I mean, did you have to basically start over from scratch? I mean, obviously, you had a lot of lessons learned, but it's a whole different uh, like text paradigm, right? Yes. Um, the first iOS version I supported was the first one that had the actual text element in it. And I won't get too much into detail on that, but uh, we deliberately didn't support a couple older iOSs just to have some text features in it. Uh, once, once Apple put that in the foundation libraries, uh, it wasn't too much work to get it uh, restructured so that it would function properly. The complication was that uh, the iOS text box has all sorts of different um, hidden states based on what the OS is doing. So it's going to do stuff randomly out of sequence very regularly in ways that the desktop didn't. Hmm. So the whole conversion process was really, if you don't count the the wonderful visual improvements and stuff that we we were able to put together, if you just look at the technical, it was just a matter of figuring out what events were happening under the hood that I had to get in front of to make sure they didn't interrupt that uh, predictive text work. Was there was there a lot of challenge with the fact that you had to deal with, you know, the iPad, especially in those earlier days, uh, external keyboard support versus the on-screen keyboard? Or was that relatively smooth? Um, 
I gotta say relatively smooth, and I say it hesitantly because two of our big outstanding bugs are just because of external keyboards. Oh. <laughs> so I, I, that might not make sense, but uh, there there are issues with the keyboard, but they seem to be bounded by a certain couple things that go wrong. And I have to imagine the new uh, cursor support that everybody gets for free uh, parentheses, except for people who have custom uh, text uh, manipulation. <laughs> I assume that's been a fun uh, journey for you. Or have you even had time to get into that yet because of Slugline 2? Uh, as soon as they announced it, of course, we were digging through docs and trying to figure it out. And Stu, before I did, managed to fire it up and see what the experience was like. Um, it it has taken l- little to no adjustment because we haven't taken advantage of a couple features of that now. So oh, it's nice. it, it doesn't actually get in the way. And because... Um, I think because the way we present every little aspect of your text on the screen, uh, that was our escape hatch. It turned out to be okay to have the text system just behaving like it was in this case. Oh, that makes sense. And like, I have to imagine for you guys, that's really exciting that they, one, added cursor support, but two, came out with a keyboard with a trackpad that kind of makes the iPad into even more of a sort of uh, laptop replacement because... It seems like they keep pushing the iPad more and more into sort of your territory, a device that people can take to coffee shops and work on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, and in typical slugline fashion, we like to think that we have the presence of mind to see that coming and then we formulate a plan to take advantage of it and then we are able to release it precisely three years after everyone would be interested (laughs) in hearing about it. You know, I mean, in, in case it's not obvious to everyone, you are you are talking to the entire Slugline team right here. And so we we are sometimes a bit slow to get things implemented. I like to think it comes more from a sense of perfectionism uh, than just pure incompetence. But um, it's uh, it is amazing. T- two things really surprised us. One was we started to get feature requests almost immediately. Will you make Slugline for iPad? And we thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea to do someday. And then another funny thing happened, which is that as we got closer to realize to releasing it, we realized that Slugline for iPad was really probably going to mostly be Slugline for iPhone. And that's you know, phones, the iPhones were getting bigger and people were loving the bigness of them, uh, right as we were working through all of this. And this crazy thing was happening, which is that we realized that it was going to be an entirely valid idea, not just because of the iPad, but because of the iPhone to have Slugline for iOS be your only screenwriting app that you ever need or, or, or use, uh, which is, uh, it's such a crazy idea that it it kind of still I still get a little excited when I think about it. The idea that somebody could write a movie on their phone and 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 the PDF output that they would send to their agent would be indistinguishable from something that had previously had a lot of kind of gatekeeping uh, aspects to it. Now I, I'm intrigued by that because, like to me, Slugline feels like just exactly what a writing app for the ipad sort of usually purports itself to be yeah you know minimalistic simple it's about you know getting rid of distractions whatever so it felt like a perfect fit for the ipad but i haven't really thought about it for the phone are people really writing scripts on their phones you know i mean famously write 50 shades of gray the you know self-published original novel was written on a blackberry right so just never put it past people i I, what i love about it is 
that it's possible. It doesn't have to be pervasively true. <laughs> it just has to be, there only needs to be one person who was willing to give it a try, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we still think of the iPad as the reason that we made, you know, Slugline for iOS, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, I, I don't know if anyone's sitting down and cracking their knuckles and banging out five pages on their iPhone, <laughs> but, but what someone is definitely doing is going for a walk, getting an idea and stopping and sitting on a park bench and committing that idea to their actual screenplay document, uh, so that they don't forget it. You know, that, that is, that's definitely happening. <laughs> that to me is what, when I see the iPhone version, that's what I think of. It's sort of that stereotypical story of like, you're in a taxi and all of a sudden light bulb goes off. You've solved this problem with, in my case, code in a screenwriter's case, you know, a uh, line of dialogue, whatever. Yep. And then like you're sitting there tapping your legs cause you're just waiting. And then you run to your office and log onto your computer and try and bang it out on there as fast as you can before it leaves your brain. And yeah. the cool thing about the sort of, uh, Apple ecosystem of Mac's iPad and iPhone at this point is everything is just kind of everywhere. Each of these devices yeah. almost feels like it's a window into your information. And so when I see like, you know, slug line on the iPhone, it's like you can just get that idea down on paper in the exact same place that you're going to open it up later on your iPad or on your, you know, 27 inch uh, iMac Pro. Yep. Because it's all just there and it's the same experience everywhere, which is really cool. Yeah, totally. And I think we're the beneficiaries of that Apple ecosystem there where, you know, we've got iCloud, uh, Dropbox is well supported. And so, yeah, that, that, that dream is real. And, uh, and we, we try to support it as best we can. Uh, that is certainly how we imagine people using the iPhone version. And then I think they've surprised us by, uh, by doubling down and using it even more, more than that. So let's talk about Slugline 2 then. So it's been, uh, what, like seven years since the original Slugline? And this is the first uh, major update, right? That's right. Yeah. In terms of major meaning a new version. And you went with a, a paid update model, right? Yeah. We, so we, we had numerous updates along the way to the Mac version, um, added new features, supported new operating systems, um, and fixed bugs, of course. And, uh, and yeah, Slugline 2 was, uh, what was starting to happen was that, uh, a confluence of important features was kind of building up in our minds of like, this is going to be worth, you know, a whole number upgrade and it might be a good, uh, breaking point for a paid update. And again, I think we handled that somewhat naively, but with the best of intentions in terms of trying to find a sustainable way to get an awesome new version of Slugline into folks' hands. Um, it's, it's, but it's, you know, it's all still very fresh and we've made some decisions that, uh, are, we are still finding out how well they're working. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, not only did we, um, choose to have a, a paid update, but we also took it, we, we took the opportunity to rethink that whole free trial thing. And so we came up with a, a solution that uh, I think is pretty clever uh, f to, to handle that as well. And that's, it's, it's a free app in the store now, right? And then there's 
uh, an in-app purchase to sort of buy the full version? That's that's right. And and importantly for us, the free version is useful. So um, and I think that's important for Apple, too, or at least it was in the initial uh, days of in-app purchases. Um, they don't really want you to use in-app purchases to create a well, they certainly don't want you to use to create a timeout trial. Right. They, they don't want a user to download an app that will not work at some point. Um and that honestly fit with our a couple of things that have been important to us about making Slugline is that we wanted to be a part of the community. You know, we wanted to be a part of the Apple community and we wanted to be a part of the screenwriting community. And that means not just selling folks stuff, that means contributing in some way. And to me, you know, the the canonical way that people kind of cut their teeth as young filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers is by making short films. And so we came up with the idea of what if Slugline was free for screenplays up to a certain length. Uh, and it felt like not only was it a cool way for a person to be able to download the app and try it out, kick the tires, see if they like the experience, but it also position Slugline 2 as potentially the coolest way for a filmmaker early in their aspirations to bang out a bunch of great little short screenplays and, uh, you know, participate in John August's, you know, three page challenge or whatever else, you know, you want to do as a aspiring writer. Um, you know, uh, we wanted, we wanted the, the free version to feel, uh, like, something that to, to, a, to a certain type of writer, it, it would, it would feel like a, a, an amazing gift, you know? Yeah. It's like a natural breaking point for, um, is this person doing something where they kind of have the means to, to pay for it versus somebody who's kind of learning the craft or whatever is more likely to be doing something small. Yeah. And we've tried to embody that spirit before I, I wrote a blog post for the Slugline blog a while back explaining to to people how to write in fountain using just any old text editing application on on their computer or phone or whatever um you know basically the 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 spirit of fountain is if you just write something you know in plain text that looks vaguely like a screenplay well that's fountain you know and so the punchline to that blog post was that you know you could do all that in a .txt file and the and then when you're finally ready to buy slugline you can just open that file and all your formatting is there and you can print a perfect pdf that you're that, that no one in in the industry would ever know didn't come from final draft and and uh and so the the punchline to that was that slugline is the first screenwriting app that doesn't require itself <laughs> uh, so we've always tried to and and by the way a big a big uh, a big embodiment of that is true about slugline 2 as well um the only other app that's anything really like slugline uh is uh, highland from john august company quote unquote apps and highland 2 is a beautiful app his his company's called quote unquote apps Yes. Okay. For a second uh, there, yeah. I was like, wow, man, that's some serious shade. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's worth clarifying. Yes. Um, 
no, it's a, it's a, it's a hilariously clever yeah, uh, name great. for a company. Um, and, uh, and they make great stuff and Highland two is beautiful, but J- John had massive aspirations for what it could do. And they exceeded the boundaries of the fountain format. So when you write in Highland two, you can, you can choose the fountain format, but the default is to, cr- to create a dot Highland file, which is a bundle that contains a fountain file and a bunch of other stuff. And we wanted to add some exciting new functionality to Slugline uh, too, but to stay true to the fountain format. And, uh, and that's been kind of a guiding principle for us uh, in, in no small part, because if, you're, if your computer explodes, if your house burns down, if you've somehow got that fountain file anywhere, you could fire up a Commodore 64 and load that file and start editing it, you know? And, and so that, that design goal of the fountain format, that it would be free, open, compatible with everything, and that it would never, uh, that you'd never be stuck with some important writing and no app that can open it, uh, which is an experience that I think too many people have had. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, meant that, uh, we, you know, we, we know that there will be some folks out there who will try to kind of game the system and figure out how to, uh, create, you know, uh, 15, six page screenplays in the free version of Slugline and stitch them all together in a PDF app or something like that. And, and, and uh, you know what, more power to them, because if that's where you are in your writing career, we are happy to be a part of it, you know? Yeah. That kind of fits with the, uh, the sort of rebel, uh, ethos of like your, your, uh, video side of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard this hilarious Q and a with, uh, with Quentin Tarantino talking about his writing process, which forever was writing by hand and then forever was a typewriter and someone eventually convinced him to get a computer. And so what he does is he types a page of a screenplay, prints it, sets it on the desk next to him, deletes all the text and types the next page. (laughs) So I guess Slugline 2 is free for people making short films and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, so I, as always, I'm, I'm kind of running low on time here, but there is a couple things I wanted to ask about. So as far as marketing the app, um, I've noticed on your page, you have a bunch of like pull quotes from pretty well-known, uh, writers like Stephen Fry, Neil Cross. How yeah. did you, how did you go about like getting those? Is that something that you sort of tried to make happen or is that like, they just happened to write about it and you were giddy and adding it? In true slugline fashion, we we went we 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 acquired those lovely sentiments uh, through laziness, incompetence, and zero effort. <laughs> um, we well, no, actually, we put a lot of effort into our lazy incompetence. But um, no, uh, we we got an email from a person named Stephen Fry with a technical question, and we answered it, and he replied super sweetly and kindly and said, I adore Slugline. And I, and I said, holy crap, this is the real Stephen Fry. (laughs) And so I just replied to him and said, you know, that's such a lovely thing for you to say. And I hate myself for asking you this, but would you mind if we stuck it on our website? And he said, absolutely not. Please do with my compliments. So, um, so over and over again, we've gotten just very nice messages from people who, uh, you know, who, who clearly were the people we designed Slugline for and who, who get it and who are excited about 
you know, who, who just, you know, it's, I mean, it's obviously the most gratifying thing, right? When somebody says, yes, you know, when I write with Slugline, I feel those things that you were talking about, that you were hoping that a person would feel, I feel liberated. I feel like uh, this is supporting my writing process and not distracting me with a bunch of other junk. Um, and, uh, and so a few of those folks have been kind enough, uh, to, to, to share those quotes with us. And, uh, we are, we just couldn't be more grateful or gratified about that. It's, it's pretty amazing. And then is there, is there anything else you guys do leading up to any of your big releases? Uh, the main thing that I've noticed, which I know you have a lot of experience with is you've made a couple little like tutorials explaining things like yeah. how, how the app works. Yeah. Um, I'm a fan of those things. Obviously, like you, I have kind of a motion graphics bug in me where I want to make videos and things like that. Um, uh, we are behind on... I, I'd like to make many, many more of those for Slugline 2 because there's a lot of really neat functionality in there that I think is a is a great show-don't-tell opportunity. Um, we... We, uh, I'll, I'll, we will be the umpteenth guest on your show to, to say that we absolutely were blown away by the amazing resource you created in your blog post for uh, how, how you launched uh, Dark Noise. Oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. We, it was so incredibly helpful. It was a great list of things that we, if we were smarter or better at our jobs, we would have actually totally done. Um, <laughs> we tried, you know, we did our best um, uh, to reach out to some folks, to reach out to press, whatever. Uh, we're bad at that. Um, you know, in my other job with Red Giant and Maxon, where I make, you know, video, uh, editing plugins and, and, and tools for, uh, VFX and motion graphics, I have a whole beautiful, amazing marketing team of people who just know how to, to communicate the value of something to someone who might want to use it yeah, you're kind to of do their art. over there, aren't you? Uh, yeah. And so I see what they do and I know I don't know how to do it. I mean, Seth is amazing at that, for example. And like, uh, you know, I'm, we, we kind of, I think Clint, you can correct me if I get this wrong, but like we kind of decided to that, that that being a little bit crappy at marketing would hopefully convey the sincerity and earnestness of what we're trying to do <laughs> by just sort of saying, uh, we made an app and we would love for you to use it. And especially now, I think the, 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 the free to download upgrade in the app, if you want model really allows the app itself to be the marketing, which is the best way that I think the two of us without any additional resources really know how to do it. You know, we're not going to, uh, I mean, I say this now, maybe this would change in the future, you know, have a, a screenplay writing competition where we invite, you know, famous screenwriters to judge screen, you know what I mean? We're, uh, we're, we, we prefer kind of, uh, the app itself to be the marketing we hope yeah i'm curious because like the last episode i had curtis on who uh does a snowboarding app and yeah it's it's always interesting listening to him talk about that because unlike a lot of other ios app devs that i work with he can't really rely on trying to get a feature in you know some app tech blog or something like that because there's not that big of an overlap between kind of our world and uh and skiing and snowboarders and for you there is definitely more of an overlap but it's still like it's a whole separate industry and i'm curious like like do you have kind of 
a target market within that industry that you're going after. Cause you know, you could have the Hollywood side of things where it's like long screenplays, but there's also kind of the YouTuber uh, short film side of things, which I guess is kind of the dual nature of what you're targeting with the free version versus the paid version now. Yeah. I, I it's, it's funny. I, I think we had, I think we had ideas that maybe there would be, if you looked at kind of a bell curve of, uh, of experience level of, of screenwriters that we would get the tails on either end, you know, that we would get someone who is aspirational and new and intimidated by either the price point or the, you know, page locking colored pages, you know, complexity of, of, of a final draft kind of a, an application. And then that there would be this other, kind of screenwriter who's been there, done that, has paid their dues in final draft and is confident enough in what they're doing that they're willing to look at another solution. Obviously, a big part of that, a feature that we did not have in Slugline 1, but we do in Slugline 2, is the ability to open and save final draft files. So that was an important kind of combat compatibility oh, layer wow. that we felt was essential for, uh, yeah, which is a, you know, it's a... It's a complex problem yeah. that I think Clint tackled really well. You know, um, there it's an it's an XML file format that is flexible enough for the for Final Draft itself to hang itself with the rope of the file yeah. format. Well, and do they do they support like very old versions of the file too? Like, is it one of those file formats that has grown over time, and because of that, it's very kind of mangled and complex? Well. A handful of years ago, they changed to their XML format. And when they did that, they got rid of most of the old cruft. Wait, was it a binary format before that? No, not exactly. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, man. FDR was, so it was dot FDR originally. And that was from the days where, you know, you'd, you'd have a floppy disk of, of your app and then you'd have a floppy disk that you were saving your file to. And maybe you only have one floppy drive. And so, and you couldn't hold the whole uh, document in, in RAM at once on your beige Mac or whatever. So you, you the, the file format had uh, a lot of, accommodations in it for uh the the notion that parts of it would be edited at a time etc oh, um, interesting it, it's it's kind of a famous thing that uh if like i have screenplays the first screenplay i ever wrote was a dot fdr file uh it is incredibly difficult to find an app that will actually open that final draft will do it. It actually doesn't do a particularly good job of it. Like it doesn't get the title page, for example. Yikes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in fact, the, the, the marketing materials that we do have on slugline, uh, dot co, that's our site, um, is, a uh, is a screenplay that I wrote, um, a thousand years ago, the first draft of it. And in order to kind of migrate it forward, I had to update my version of final draft, <laughs> convert it from FDR to FDX, then use an early, early alpha of slugline two to import it, uh, into fountain. And, uh, and then I, I, I finished it there and we've been using it as kind of a marketing sample, but, uh, it, it's, um, yeah, that, the, the FDR file format, uh, you know, I mean, good, good on them for, for, 
from moving past it. Um, but they kind of, there, it's, it, it also in the process kind of became the canonical example of like the abandoned screenplay file format where you could have a file on your hard drive that you wrote that you can no longer read. Yeah. Which is crazy when it's, you know, ostensibly text. Yep. I mean, that's a big part of our whole approach. I, I think it comes out in the marketing. I think it comes out in the app, but like any reasonable human will look at a screenplay and say, that's just text. And as a developer, you know, it's not, but it should be like, if all you can see and feel is a wall of text, then you should be able to get that anywhere you have it. You shouldn't be able to lose it or, or have to pay to get at it again. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's kind of the same, uh, the same appeal to Markdown is like, at the end of the day, I'm just writing blog posts, you know, the original John Gruber sort of yeah. version of this. And it's like, who cares that it's got links and headers and all this stuff? It's really, like, really, it's just text. And so, yeah. yeah, it's really cool that you kind of brought those ideas into a a more niche application. Well, I guess it's not really more niche. It's just a different application than uh, blogs and websites. It, it may be, but, it, but you know what? It, it weirdly fits almost even, it's even maybe an easier sell in some cases, this kind of took us a little bit by surprise, but the concept of writing a screenplay, like if you're writing a blog post, you're writing the final thing, right? But a screenplay is, you know, in some ways of describing it is like a blueprint or a plan for making a movie. And so in a weird way, it's like writing code, right? It's code that is parsed by a person, but it's a set of instructions, you know, and, uh, it, it it's, it's, it's reductive to describe it that way, but it's, it, ha it has been a fun surprise of learning that actually there are quite a few screenwriters out there like John August who are big nerds and who <laughs> approach screenwriting in their own kind of technical way where they want to, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, if you look at something like, you know, the screenplay for Memento or something like I challenge you to say that that's not a technical document. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even even Die Hard, you know, the the plot mechanics in the third act of Die Hard are are like a Swiss watch, you know, and uh, that's that's technical. You know, screenwriters are are uh, they 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 draw diagrams they have you know whiteboard crazy walls next to their uh, computers you know they 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 <laughs> and they love um visualizations and tools to help them with structure and planning and that's why we have like the beautiful sort of outline navigator view and in, in slugline and the and the cool timeline view in slugline 2 uh because screenwriters are it, it actually turns out the venn diagram of screenwriters and huge nerds uh is has a lot of overlap <laughs> I guess, I mean, that makes sense. It's ultimately taking a big complex problem and trying to distill it down into a single document, like programming in some ways that yeah. you then hand off to, uh, instead of a compiler, a director or whatever, and then it gets played out. And yeah, yeah. no, that's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. Every director is their own virtual machine. Good luck. <laughs> well, it's true. It is actually, that's part of, I think, the unique challenge of writing a screenplay. I, I think, you know, there's this big sort of silly uh, argument about whether screenplay should have, you know, direct reference to what the camera is doing or to shots or to say, we see this or we see that. But you can choose to write that way. You could say, we see just his legs walking into the room or you could write, you know, legs you know walking into the room <laughs> and and the 
the reader will parse that and say, oh, that's where, you know, we're just seeing, you know, the, the, the footsteps tiptoeing into the room or whatever. And, um, it, it maybe makes the contract between the writer and the reader a little more obvious in the sense that like a screenplay holds this implicit promise that at some point this will be visualized, that you are responsible for creating a picture in the reader's head. Uh, it's one of the, actually the things that I think, you know, makes, a great screenplay so fun to read is that the great screenwriters uh, are are painting a, a word picture for you in a way that uh, where the stakes are are much higher than in prose writing because in a novel if you don't have a clear picture of what Hogwarts looks like or what the layout of it is eh, it's fine but in a screenplay somebody has to yeah somebody's job is to parse those <laughs> yeah. words and understand what you mean Yep. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh, all right. So I'm, I'm, uh, running out of time. So I'm going to ask you guys the question I ask everybody and we'll start with you, Clint. Uh, what is a person or people out there that have inspired you that, uh, you and your work that you'd recommend other people check out? Um, I've been focusing a lot more on science writing and science communication lately. Uh, so I'd say, a guy named Kishore Hari. Uh, he goes by Science Quiche on Twitter. He shows up in a lot of my uh, Alamo Drafthouse filmmaking or filmmaker behind the scenes types discussions. And he's really focused on trying to help other people understand science and use it in their lives better. So I'd, I'd say Kishore probably is my, my person. Interesting. And I assume science writing, like a lot of things are, is like especially relevant uh, in this specific time, trying to understand that and make it accessible for people. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really weird to have this all play out right now, because this is very much my lane from what my whole career had been. So it's, it's reassuring me that, that if we can tell the right stories, if we can show people how their, their behaviors affect other people. If we can show people how to get out of trouble, that they'll be able to use that better themselves. Nice. Uh, and Stu, what about you? Well, that, wow. What an awesome answer that was. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say, uh, screenwriter director, Shane black is, is the person I want to call out. Um, because his early screenplays not only, you know, changed the film industry, um, they are still a source of inspiration for exactly the thing I was kind of getting a little too philosophical about a second ago, which is writing a screenplay that is such a pleasure to read that the story flows into you in an effortless and enjoyable way. Um, so if you can seek out, you know, his, you know, original screenplay for Lethal Weapon, um, or the long kiss, good night, or the last boy scout. Um, these are of course, movies that I absolutely love, but they are also just such a joy to read. There's a line in the screenplay for lethal weapon when Riggs and Murtaugh are approaching the, the, the house where there's going to be like a shootout and someone's going to fall into the swimming pool and all hell is going to break loose. Um, and he says, this is this, this is the house I'm going to buy. He's trying to describe how opulent this, this, you know, Beverly Hills house is. And he says, this is the house I'm going to buy if this movie is a huge hit. <laughs> he actually wrote that into the descriptive, <laughs> 
text. And nobody had done that before. And of course, since then, idiots like me have tried and failed to emulate that in a, in a clever way. And of course now like nobody should do that. But at the time, oh my God, (laughs) to read that, uh, typed onto a page was just like magic. So, um, so there's still just so much great juicy stuff to, to uncover in those, in those screenplays. And then, and then to see, you know, that like, um, you know, when, when, uh, Sam Jackson says, you know, when, when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption or whatever, like it's, uh, these lines are as perfect on the page as they are in the movies. And it's really inspirational to see how tone and cleverness and wit and kinetic energy can be stored on, you know, uh, 180 120 sheets of uh of eight and a half by 11 paper it's it's uh it's it's just pure magic uh so shane black is my pick awesome well thank you guys both so much for coming on uh this was really cool i i've been a person who's like tried to use Slugline a bunch of times for my nascent uh <laughs> youtube careers uh or different random things and so i've always enjoyed using it but it was really cool to kind of talk to the people that birthed it into existence um so where can we find i guess we'll start with clint where can we find you uh on the internet and kind of the the work that you do i'm really just on twitter nowadays uh clint taurus is my handle um i have a website but i haven't been maintaining it so that's probably it (laughs) and then Stu. uh yeah so i'm so first of all i would hope that folks would go to slugline.co and check us out there uh, we're slugline app on Twitter. Uh, I am five tu on Twitter and, uh, you can find my writings about all kinds of filmmaking stuff at prolost.com P R O L O S T.com. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched FM. You can also discuss the episode with me, other listeners, and sometimes our guests on our dedicated subreddit, r slash launched.fm. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Breaker, or whatever your podcast of choice happens to be. And you can find show notes and more at launched.fm.com. <laughs> <laughs>